as we enter the fall season, we will begin reading and reflecting on the book of Daniel together. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 is where we are beginning today. Uh, and, um, you know, if, if you're pulling it up on a, on a phone or a tablet, then, you know, you can just scroll down until you see Daniel and tap that, and there you are. If you have an actual paper Bible, which I, I recommend, um, uh, then you may not be quite as familiar with where Daniel falls. Um, you see, our Bibles are organized by genre. Uh, they open with the first five foundational books of the Bible called Torah, uh, the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then we have what are called the historical books uh, with all kinds of narratives and, and stories from Joshua through Esther. Uh, and then we have the wisdom and poetry section, uh, which goes from Job to the Song of Songs. And then finally, the last section of the Old Testament is the prophets, from Isaiah on down to Malachi, right? But Daniel is kind of hard to peg with genre, because the first half of the book is filled with narratives, with stories about Daniel and his friends, ones that many of us are probably very familiar with. You've got Daniel in the lion's den, you've got the, the fiery furnace story, and so on. Um, and then the second half of the book of Daniel is filled with all kinds of wild prophetic visions that Daniel receives and dreams and so on. So the question is, does the book go in the history section about stories? Or does it go in the prophetic section um, about visions and prophecy? Uh, well, in our Bibles, the book is placed among the prophets. Uh, and so you'll find it after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, that's where Daniel lands. So Daniel chapter 1 is where we will begin today. And though the book of Daniel has a great diversity of genre, as we've already said, it has a very consistent theme throughout it. The message of the book of Daniel is that the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. The kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. The stories and the visions of the book are about kings and kingdoms. But ultimately, they're about God, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When Jesus comes declaring the kingdom of God, he makes an abundance of references to the book of Daniel and, 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 and inferences to the book of Daniel. In fact, Daniel is one of the primary places where the phrase son of man comes from, which Jesus uses to refer to himself all the time. And so as we read and reflect on the book of Daniel together, we will also be reflecting on Jesus' proclamation that the kingdom of God has come near. This is the message that Daniel and his friends desperately needed to hear, and it's the message that we need to hear today as well. So let's begin with Daniel chapter 1. 
the first chapter, we'll read the whole thing together here. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, of my Lord the King, who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there 
until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for the stories and visions of Daniel. God, I pray that as we consider your word together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So over the past couple of years, many of you have participated in one of our story groups. One of our story groups, right? In these groups, we've discovered that each one of us has some core story or stories that have shaped who we are and what we believe. Uh, Stories that have formed us and formed our faith. Stories of deep grief, stories of great joy. And all of these have shaped who we are and how we see God. One of my core stories is about growing up in a divorced family. Uh, Before I was even a year old, my parents divorced. And so I grew up my entire life, more or less, going back and forth between my mother's house and my father's house. I primarily lived with my mother, but uh, one night a week and every other weekend, I would find myself at my dad's. And because of this, I also grew up between two different churches as well. Uh, Every other weekend, Uh, one weekend would be at my mom's church, one weekend would be at my dad's church, right? Back and forth, back and forth. This was my experience growing up. It shaped a lot of who I am. I don't have a specific memory of this, but apparently when I was a child, there was at some point that I I drew a picture, uh, maybe a prompt from class or something, of what life was like. And I drew a picture of a volleyball game in which I was the ball being tossed back and forth. Uh, My mom saw that picture and kind of broke her heart. Um, But all of this back and forth from home to home led me to often feeling like I didn't really have a home because I was always back and forth. And so I longed for a place where I could be still, a place where I could be at rest, a place to belong, a place to really call home. And this is where God met me in a very unique way. Do remember this. Because in a way that I cannot describe apart from the grace of God, I began to have this sense amid my feelings of homelessness that no matter where I was, God was home. God was the home of of all homes, not connected to any particular place, not connected to any particular church. God was always God. And so God became home for me. And this powerfully shaped my own sense of self and, and my sense of God, right? And I'm sure that each one of you has your own core stories. 
These core stories that, that shape who you are and how you see God. I'm sure many of you have stories about your own experience of home, right? After all, most, I think, of the folks in this room did not grow up here, uh, but have found your way here, uh, whether it's across the country or across the world, here you are today. Uh, and so how has that change of home affected your view of God? How has it uh, affected your faith? Has it challenged your faith? Has it encouraged your faith? Uh, for some of you, maybe you haven't changed locations, or at least you haven't in a long time, but the world around you has changed in such a way that it doesn't feel quite as much like home as it used to. You feel like a stranger in the middle of the world, and it makes you unsure of where exactly God might be, because it's not as obvious as it used to be. This is the kind of story that we read in the book of Daniel. It opens up with a story about a people losing their home. For most of the ancient world, the loss of home also means the loss of God. Gods in the ancient world were chiefly known through their relics, and the temples where those relics were kept. And that God's authority was represented and exercised largely by that land's king. This is true throughout the ancient world, and it was also true in ancient Israel. After all, Israel had a temple in Jerusalem. And within that temple, there were uh, special sacred items uh, that we read about. There were lampstands, there were bowls, there were special tables, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, so on and so forth. Israel had a temple. The temple had special items. Israel also had a king. And that king ruled in the name of the Lord. All of this defined home for God's people. But the opening verses of Daniel show us that all of this is being stripped away. The book begins in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Right? And then we are told that the king of Judah was taken into captivity and some of the articles from the temple of God are carried off to the temple in Babylon. So the temple is raided, the sacred relics are stolen, and the king is arrested. That's the first verse, first couple of verses of Daniel. And so all of this in the ancient world would communicate that not only the people of Israel have been defeated, but also the God of Israel has been defeated. That's how it would have been seen and understood. Clearly, this God is not as powerful as they thought. 
because all of these things have been taken and destroyed. So that's the question that hovers over the entire book of Daniel. Does God still reign? Is the Lord still God? This is a question that we might wonder today as well. In a world of pandemics, natural disasters, and war, is there a God? In a world where churches are shrinking and faith is often dwindling, does God still reign? We live in a world where a sense of home has been stripped away from the people of God. And that's where Daniel and his friends find themselves. But it's even deeper than that. It's even deeper than that. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, does not merely seek to conquer the people. He seeks to convert the people, right? He doesn't only take their home from them. He also seeks to take their identity from them. He does this by enrolling select Israelites into a curriculum of Babylonian enculturation, right? You will become like Babylonians. Just as he's taken items from Israel's temple and placed them in the Babylonian temple, now he also takes people from Israel's kingdom and places them in service of Babylon's king. And there are at least two stages to this Babylonian enculturation. Uh, First, you have verse 4 that says they are taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. And then next, you have verse 5 that says they were assigned a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. So first, they're told the teachings of Babylon. But next, they're fed the food of Babylon. And we might explain these stages uh, in, in, in this way. The first is about information. But the second is about the much deeper process of transformation. It's one thing to know what Babylon knows. It's a very different thing to desire what Babylon desires. And this is where Daniel and his friends draw the line. We see this boundary drawing in a word play between verses 7 and 8. It doesn't come through in most English translations, but the Hebrew makes it very clear. Uh, The same word is used in both verses, verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, the Hebrew literally reads that the chief official set on them new names. And so Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael becomes Meshach, Ezariah becomes Abednego. One by one, the official sets new names on Daniel and his friends. But then in verse 8, the same word is used, and it says very literally, but Daniel set on his heart not to defile himself with the royal food. The same word is used in both cases. So while Babylon tries to set new identities on them, it turns out that Daniel is quite already set 
in who he is as someone who belongs to God. The king offers them filet and wine, but Daniel chooses a very simple diet of vegetables and water. He's the original vegan, right? Now, as I read this story, I cannot help but begin to think of the image that we have been reflecting on throughout this year. This image of a table in the wilderness. Right? You guys thought we were done with it. We're never, we're never done with this image, right? Daniel and his friends are offered a seat at the table of luxury. But instead, they choose this sparse wilderness table. It reminds me very much of Jesus in the wilderness. The enemy comes to him, tempting him to turn stones into bread. But Jesus responds, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Babylon wants to capture not only their land and their service, but also their appetites. And this is true of the world that we live in today. The world around us wants to redefine who we are, to give us different names, right? Uh, They were given different names in Babylon, and we too were given different names. You're called consumer. You are what you have. Or you're called producer. You are what you make. Rather than being called beloved, your true name. Babylon does not only want their minds, their land, their service. It wants their appetite as well. It wants to capture their desire. And and here's the thing. For far too long, Christianity has primarily been defined cognitively. Right? It's been defined by the question, what do you believe? What do you believe? Right? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the Bible? So on and so forth. And these are really important questions. Really important questions. They're essential parts of Christian faith, but the much deeper and far more revealing question is this. Not merely what do you believe, but what do you desire? What do you desire deep down? Because we are formed far less by our thoughts and knowledge and far more by our appetites and desires. What do you desire? It's a vital question for Jesus followers to reflect on. Because it's possible to believe all the right answers while still desiring all the wrong things. Here's an interesting observation as I look out upon Western American Christianity. Daniel accepted Babylonian education 
but he rejected the Babylonian way of life. He allowed himself to be informed by Babylon, but refused to be transformed by Babylon. Meanwhile, Western Christianity has often done just the opposite, has often rejected education, secular education, but wholeheartedly embraced a secular way of life. Though churches believe in Jesus, right, they have all the right answers. Methods for outreach mimic secular ones. Metrics for success mimic secular ones. Using the same strategies of marketing and entertainment, using the same measures of of numbers of people and income, how many and how much. So we've taught our minds to try to think the right answers. But meanwhile, our appetites are every bit as shaped by the culture around us. Though our minds are supposedly committed to the Word of God, our hearts so often are still captured and shaped by the culture that we're in. See, Daniel turned down a table of luxury for one of simplicity instead. But we have often just exchanged one luxurious table for another luxurious table. And so a question for us to ponder is, what does it look like for our desires to be directed toward God and God's kingdom? Not just our minds. What does it look like for our appetites to be shaped by the way of Jesus? Not just the doctrines of Jesus. What does it look like to choose simplicity instead of luxury? To choose stones instead of bread? What does it look like to embrace that table in the wilderness? This is the question for us. Daniel and his friends show us what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God and to faithfully embrace simplicity and humility even when luxury is on offer and to not let their appetites be formed by the people and place around them, but to keep their hearts and desires set on God and God alone. Now, one temptation as we read these Old Testament stories is to romanticize them into these sort of inspiring hero tales, right? Look at what they did. Now you do it too. And, you know, if if we stopped right here where we are, then that's what we would take from this morning. Uh, If this is all that we see in these stories, what we're essentially left with are human stories that encourage us in human effort. But though these stories do feature Daniel and his friends, they are essentially stories about God and God's kingdom 
After all, why would Daniel set on his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and wine? Why would he do that? Well, it goes back to that question that lingers over the whole book. Does God still reign? Is God king? And Daniel is convinced that the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. The temple's been raided. The the items from it have been stolen. The king has been arrested. I and my friends have been carted off into exile. But God is still king. He's convinced that that's true. And that's what the story of Daniel is ultimately about. It's about God. We already saw how the word set is repeated a few times to to show us the difference between Babylon's plan and Daniel's resolve. There's another phrase that's repeated several times throughout this passage that shows us this everlasting kingdom of God, despite the circumstances. Once again, this phrase does not come in and through clearly uh, in, in English translations. But the phrase that occurs three times is two words. God gave. God gave. The first time we see it is in verse 2. This verse describes the attack on Jerusalem, the capture of the king, the raid on the temple. Remember, in ancient perspective, these verses are a description of the defeat of Israel and their God. And yet, look at how verse 2 begins. It says, the Lord delivered. Literally, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Nebuchadnezzar did not take these things. God gave them. The author is letting us know that though it looks like God has been defeated, he is very much still in charge. God's playing the long game. And so, you know, he he loses this hand because he's playing to the end. It looks like God has lost, but he's very much still in charge. The next time we see this phrase is in verse 9, where it says, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Literally, it says God gave Daniel favor. So it looks like Daniel and his friends have been captured and every blessing of their life has been stripped away. And yet, God still gives. God still blesses them. God gives them favor even in the midst of captivity. And finally, we see it a third time in verse 17. Throughout their Babylonian education, it says, to these four young men, Daniel and his friends, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand dreams and visions of all kinds. 
And so God gives them wisdom and understanding. Because they desired God, because their appetites were set on God, God gave himself to them. It's just as Jesus would later say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Daniel and his friends did not hunger after Babylon's food, but after God and his kingdom. And so God gave himself to them. We are so often dissatisfied because we're desiring the wrong things. Even when we bring those things to God in prayer, sometimes they're not the things we should be asking for, really. But when we seek first the kingdom, when we desire God and God's kingdom, God never withholds himself. God will always meet us when we look for him. So time and time again throughout the narrative, we see that though it appears that God has been defeated, God is very much still in control. So as we read these stories, the question before us should not be, will you be like Daniel the hero? But rather, do you trust that God is king? That's the question that the book of Daniel presents us with. Do you trust that God is king? Though the kingdom of Israel has fallen, the kingdom of God still stands. And this is seen most completely in Jesus who chose to embrace the wilderness of the cross. Jesus rejected the luxury of worldly power and instead chose the humility of death, death on the cross. And just as God gave, gave, gave throughout Daniel chapter 1, so Jesus too has given us his body and his blood that we might be cleansed and forgiven so that we might find our home in him at his table, no matter where we are, no matter our circumstances. There is a table in the wilderness. It's Jesus. And so he offers himself to us so that we would forever know that when it looks like God's been defeated, when he's dying and bleeding on the cross, this is precisely how his kingdom comes into the world. Though it looks like God has been defeated. It's through his death and resurrection that he has established his kingdom as an everlasting kingdom. Thanks be to God.
Bye.